The last time I went to Uganda, I was a bit shocked and surprised when we got to Lira, uh, the town that we were going to minister to, to, to see my picture on posters all over the town, not in the post office. But there I was, pictured with two other Ugandan men. And I thought, well, that's intriguing. <laughs> There's my picture uh, all over town. I wonder what the poster says. The poster announced that I would be holding a two-day crusade in the park in the middle of the town. Now, that would be okay if anyone had told me that I was holding a two-day crusade in the park in the middle of the town. But nobody had. I learned it first as I read the poster. Now listen, I am for almost 50 years now a Presbyterian. And like a good Presbyterian, I had brought a stack of notes this high because I was going to lead a pastor's training conference. That's what I had come to do, not to preach a crusade. I don't do crusades. And so I said as much to the Lord, Lord, I don't do crusades. And then I said to the Lord, I get it. I know what you're up to. I've heard this story before. You get people to Africa, and then you have them do things when they're out of their comfort zone that they have to depend on you to do. And so I reluctantly agreed to do this crusade because the posters were up. And as a last resort, I conceded, okay, I will just have to trust the Lord on this one. But secretly, I prayed that nobody would see the posters and that nobody would show up for this crusade. That prayer was not answered. When the time for the crusade came, in the field around the pavilion from which I was to preach and the rest of the team was uh, sitting behind me, hundreds of people had gathered to hear me preach this crusade. And so I started to preach. I had no notes. I had no notes. (laughs) I had no notes because I had no time to prepare notes. And so I, I don't know what came out of my mouth. I can't remember. So now you're sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, we've heard this story before. You didn't know what you were going to say. You don't remember what you said. But what you said, hundreds of people came to faith in Christ. Now, you can believe that if you want to, but that's not what happened. After I started preaching, people began to trickle away. (laughs) But I kept preaching, and then more people began to leave. And I thought, am I that bad? What, What am I saying? And so I looked pleadingly at Johnson, Pastor Johnson, one of the other men who was pictured on the poster with me for some help. And he said, keep preaching, keep preaching. And so I kept preaching and a lot more people left. Words were coming out of my mouth, but I was having this conversation with the Lord where I was saying, see, Lord, didn't I tell you I don't preach crusades? And now look, everybody's leaving. But about that time, I stepped out from under the pavilion, and I looked up behind me, and I saw the ugliest, meanest, blackest sky I think I've ever seen in my life. And I was so happy. I said, yes, yes, yippee, it's the storm. It's not me. And then everybody started running. And as many people who could fit took cover in this shelter that was across the field from the pavilion. 
But almost immediately, the rain just started to, to pour and to pelt. And lightning flashed almost in unison with this loud clap of thunder. And man, I dropped the microphone that I was holding like it was a poisonous snake because I didn't want my body to serve as the conductor between the water and the electricity. And besides, I had just read about this pastor in Texas, a Baptist pastor, who took a wireless mic, a cordless mic, into the baptismal pool with him, and it was frayed and he got electrocuted. True story. So I dropped the microphone, and I took cover under the pavilion. But not Pastor Johnson. Pastor Johnson reached down and picked up the microphone that I had dropped as if it were a sword of a soldier. He picked it up and he began to preach because Pastor Johnson believed that the battle must go on. So I tried to stop Pastor Johnson. I said, Johnson, put that microphone down. You can't hold that microphone in this storm with all this water. But Johnson continued to preach. And then he would pray. And then he would preach. And then he would pray. And I thought, this man literally loves preaching. Literally loves praying more than he loves his own life. And I thought of Jesus' word when he said, those who love their life in this world will lose it. But those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. And so I wondered to myself, what is different about Johnson? He seemed to care so little for his life, more than I cared for mine. What made him different? Why was he willing to risk what I would not? Was he doing what every believer should be willing to do? What is the normal Christian life? What is the normal behavior for the believer in Christ? What should it cost us to get the gospel out? And once we figure out the answer to that question, what's the cost? Then we have to figure out who is supposed to pay that cost. Who pays the cost for getting the gospel out? Is it a Christian here and two there and one over there? Who decides? Why shouldn't you pay the cost? Why shouldn't I pay the cost? Why should advancing the kingdom of Christ here on this earth not cost all of us something? Well, I believe it should. I think the word of God tells us it should. And we need to be convinced as we look at God's word this morning that the cost is ours and we must be willing to pay it. So if you have your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 4, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Let's pray together. Father, we plead with you now that you would use your word in unison with your spirit, Lord, to convict our hearts. Lord, that you would make us people who are willing to pay the cost to get the gospel out. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. 
We don't have a lot of information about this man called Epaphras. We know that he is from Colossae. That's his hometown. Paul says that in chapter in verse 12, that, that Epaphras is one of you. We know that Epaphras is a believer in Christ, though we don't know how he came to be a believer. We assume that at some point he probably traveled the 100 miles to Ephesus during the three years that Paul was there, and he just happened to hear Paul preaching the gospel of Christ. But in any case, we know this. Epaphras heard the gospel. Epaphras believed the gospel. And Epaphras told the gospel to the people of his city, and a church was born. Paul writes to the church in chapter 1, verse 6. He tells them, You understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ. Epaphras wasn't a Jew like Paul. He was not seminary trained. He was not a theological scholar, as Paul was when he became a believer in Christ. We don't know how he did it. We don't know what it cost him. But we know that God, through Epaphras, planted this church. But maybe there is a clue. Maybe there is a clue for us as to how he did it. Look in verse 12. Paul calls Epaphras a servant of Christ. A servant of Christ. And this may be the key. This may be the key to everything that Epaphras does. The key to everything that Epaphras is. It all flows from the fact that Epaphras views himself and therefore others view him as a servant of Christ. The word translated servant there literally means slave. A slave. He's a slave of Christ. But we translate the word servant because of the horrific way slavery has been practiced throughout human history and far too often right here in this very city. Cruel masters abusing their property. But the word servant isn't strong enough to convey what Epaphras is, how he sees himself, how others see him. He is a slave. And so as with so many other things in this world, we have perverted And we have smeared what God intended to be good, what God intended to be a blessing, so that we rebel against it, so that we don't want what God wants for us. Listen, it is a good thing to be a slave of Christ. It's a good thing. If we could separate the term from the terrible connotation, if we could redeem that word, rescue it from its abuse, you and I would see a picture of who we really are. And how you and I should really behave as slaves of Christ. Because a slave has been bought by someone who purchased them, and therefore they are owned by that person. You, believer in Christ, and I, we have been purchased by Christ. He paid the price that was required to own us as his own. His life. His life for your life and for mine. The elders, the church in Ephesus, Paul writes, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The apostle John sees a vision of heaven. In the vision, he hears the music of heaven. And they're singing a song, and they're singing a song to Jesus. And these are some of the lyrics to the song that they're singing. You, Jesus, are worthy 
because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a price. You and I are slaves of Christ. We need to see ourselves as slaves of Christ. And we need to live our lives as though we acknowledge that we are slaves of Christ. And you know what? He's a good master. And slaves are totally dependent on their masters. He takes such good care of us. He says, don't worry. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Your heavenly Father knows you have need of these things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Paul writes in Philippians 4, This same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Because he bought us, because he brought us out of this awful, horrible, bad place and brought us into his own good kingdom and lavished on us his gifts of grace he deserves from us, from you and from me, not our ingratitude, not the squandering of his good gifts on ourselves and our own pleasures, not our seeking independence from him, trying to free ourselves from slavery to Christ. Rather, he deserves our gratitude. He deserves our undying allegiance. He deserves that we devote ourselves and our lives to him, no matter what it costs us. That we serve him and not ourselves with glad hearts. That's what the slave of a good master desires. That's what he wants. And that's how he acts. Stand up. Just for a minute, please. Because if you hear this, you've heard it all. And if you're standing, you can't be asleep. Romans 6, verse 18. Now you are free. Free from your slavery to sin. And you have become slaves to righteous living. Now you are free from the power of sin. And have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. That's who you are. That's who I am. That's our identity. And that's what we should do. Thank you. Be seated. People who are slaves to Christ act differently. Epaphras does. Look again in verse 12. Paul writes there, he is always wrestling in prayer for you. The Greek word for wrestle there is agonizomai. Agonizomai. And we can easily hear our English word in there, agonize. And this is where we get the word. The word means to enter a contest, to, to enter gymnastic games, to contend with adversaries, to struggle with difficulties and dangers, to endeavor with strenuous zeal to obtain something. And we can picture in our minds the face of someone who is agonizing. And we have seen more than once the the face of, of the athlete, particularly the Olympic athlete, 
that's straining, agonizing, giving it everything they've got to be that little bit stronger, to be that little bit faster, that will help them attain the prize they want, the gold medal, not the bronze, not the silver, the gold medal hanging around their neck. Well, that's a picture of what Epaphras does for the people in his church, back in his hometown. He wrestles, he agonizes in prayer. But the prize of his struggling is not for a gold medal. His prize is in verse 12. That the people he loves, the people in his church, may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured, full of everything, full of everything that's in accordance with God's will, convinced that in Christ they are complete. That's the agon, the prize for which Epaphras agonizes, that he strains and struggles. None of us, not one of us, are going to get through this life well without support, without help. And God's ordained help, his support to get me through my life and to get you through your life is prayer. And if we don't pray for each other, we abandon each other. And there you are. And you're fighting with all your might. And you're looking behind you while you fight. And you're watching. You're looking for your help to come. You're looking for your reinforcements. And so you keep fighting because you know that your reinforcements are coming, but they don't come. And you look behind you and you see them. There they are, but they're not coming to help you. Because they're worried about their own comfort. They're worried about their own convenience. They're worried about their own cup of coffee. And so they leave you alone to fight for yourselves. That's what we do to one another when we don't pray for each other. All of us has some pull. All of us that would seek to drag us away from Christ and the life that he calls us to live. Back to the old life. Back to the old sins, back to the old habits. Habits are formed by repeated activity. And so with every sin, that same sin that's committed, another strand is added to the cord that would pull us away. And the thicker that cord becomes, the stronger that cord becomes, and the more difficult that cord becomes to break. Epaphras is not willing to watch the people he loves be pulled back by that cord. He knows that the people in his church have just come out of paganism. And you can imagine any kind of sensuality that you can't imagine, and please don't, but whatever you could imagine, it was practiced in Colossae. It was. Shamelessly and joyfully. And so the cord connecting them to their own past practices was pulling at them, pulling at them. The cord of their environment and culture pulled at them as well. Everyone in Colossae wasn't saved. They were still living beside people. They were still, in some cases, living with people who weren't believers in Christ, pulling at them. Why don't you be what you used to be? Why don't you do what the rest of us do? Come on, come on. Pull, pull, pull. As we saw last week, Satan himself seeks to devour, to pull us away from Christ, to pluck us out of his hand. And then there was the Jewish population of the city that tried to pull them away with the cord of religion. These new believers from Christ. Jesus is not the only way. Well, if you say he is the way, he's not the only way. Faith in Christ is not enough. To that, you have to add something else. Pull, pull, pull. And so there's this tug of war. 
And the sides of the tug-of-war for the people in Colossae are the same as the tug-of-war for you and for me today. Our former lives pulling us. Our culture in which we live pulling us. Satan himself pulling us. Religiosity seeking to replace a true faith relationship with Christ. Pulling us, pulling us, pulling us. And the goal is always the same. Here's the goal. To devalue Christ. That's always the goal. To make less of Christ than he is. To look at that faith dollar and say, that doesn't really buy what you think it will buy you. Faith in Christ isn't going to get you where you think it will get you. You need more. You need something else. You need sex, drugs, rock and roll. You need to perform better, do better, do better. To devalue Christ is always the goal. And to enthrone someone else or something else in his place. To put something or someone else above him. And so Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 1. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things created by him and for him. He's above all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's the truth. And Epaphras isn't willing to see the people he loves pulled away from Jesus by anything or anyone else. And so in prayer, Epaphras pulls back, fights back, struggles, agonizes to see these people stand firm in God's will, to live the life that God has called them to live. He strains in prayer to see them grow in Christ so that they will really come to know and believe in Christ. I have everything that I need. That's something worth praying for. Don't you agree? When I read this description of Epaphras, I wonder how Paul would have inflected it if he were reading it. And Paul says, read this letter. When you get this letter, read it in the church. How would Paul have read it? Would he have said, Epaphras is always wrestling in prayer for you? Or would he have read, Epaphras is always wrestling in prayer for you? Or would he have said, Epaphras is always wrestling in prayer for you? And how does Paul know? How does Paul know that Epaphras wrestles in prayer? Did Epaphras come to the breakfast table one morning with Paul, pick up his cup of coffee and say, I just finished agonizing in prayer for the people in my home church? Probably not. I bet Paul knew it because he had observed Epaphras in prayer. Maybe Epaphras adopted the same position as the great prophet Elijah when he prayed after three years of drought that it would rain. And Scripture says the position that, that Elijah prayed in was that of a woman who was trying to give birth to a child, an agonizing thing. Maybe that's how Epaphras prayed. Perhaps Paul overheard Epaphras's powerful words of intercession for the people. Or perhaps Paul and Epaphras prayed together. And Paul heard the fervency in his words, most likely it's a combination of all three. But Paul knew it. And then look in verse 13. 
Paul writes, I vouch for him, that he's working hard for you. So he's straining in prayer, and he's working hard for you. And when Paul uses that word to describe Epaphras, he just simply means that every single day, Epaphras is working for them, exerting himself for them, regardless of the cost. If it's painful, he does it. If it's hard, he does it. That's what the word means that Paul uses to describe him. It's what it costs Epaphras, and it's how he lives his life for others, because he shares this goal in his praying and is working hard. He shares this goal with Paul. And Paul writes the goal in chapter 1, verse 28. Paul says, We proclaim Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. That's the goal, to present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. See, I believe that's what made Pastor Johnson hold on to the microphone in the rain, in the storm, to preach and to pray. What's it worth to you? What are you willing to pay to see other people come to Christ? To see other people find wholeness and completeness in Christ? What's it worth? Last week we were encouraged as we were reminded from the truth of God's word that we have a Savior, Jesus, who is praying for us, even now in this moment, praying for us, interceding before the Father on our behalf, praying that you and I will know and experience the good things that God has for us. Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would be strong, that his faith would not fail. And now you and I have the opportunity not to pay it forward, but to pray it forward as we pray for one another, to do for each other what we know Jesus is doing for us right now, what he did for his disciples while he was on earth with them, to wrestle in prayer for them, to work hard on their behalf, And so this is one cost that comes to you and comes to me as disciples of Christ. This is the normal behavior for those who love the Lord. I wonder how long we will continue to categorize Christians into the really good Christians who do really good things and the Christians who don't do so much, not really, as if they're both equal, as if one is okay and one is not. As if one kind of Christian is supposed to do things, but the other is exempt from it. Why do we hand out so many passes to ourselves and to our others to be Christian slackers? When are we going to begin to feel responsible for each other? And when will we look outward as Epaphras looked outward when he shared the gospel with his city? When he agonized in prayer, when he worked hard on behalf of his city, when will we feel responsible for this city? Why do we think that we will win this neighborhood in which God has placed us for Christ at no cost to ourselves? Why do we think that will happen? Why do we think these pews will fill up at no cost to us, with no straining, with no agonizing, with no hard work? We can bless this neighborhood 
We can bless the city by praying for it. And next Sunday at 9.15, the room next door ought to be filled with people who have said, you know what, I can walk this city. And if I can't walk, I'll sit and pray while others walk this city. And pray for it. Pray God's blessing over it. Pray for everyone we find here, not just the poor and the homeless and the needy. They're part of the city. But so are the academics. So are the business professionals. So are the firefighters. So are the policemen. So are the laborers. There's rich. There's poor. There's medium. There's everything in between. And all of them, all of them need to know the Lord. They need to be reached. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what price are we willing to pay to reach them? We are the body of Christ. And so we need to pray for each other. Pray that we would not throw down the microphone, but that no matter what the cost, we would with one voice give our lives for this purpose, to see Christ glorified, to see people made whole in him, and to see his kingdom advanced. Let's pray together. We're going to take just a few moments where I'm going to finally quit talking. Because there's perhaps some cost that you know already that, that God is asking of you. And maybe during the course of the sermon, things have come to your mind that you need to do. So we're going to take a minute and let the Spirit of God work in us and move in us and reveal His truth to us and what His call is on our individual lives and on as our life as a church. Let's pray silently. Father, I know that sometimes I am too intense. As if my words and my intensity can change people. Lord, I know sometimes your truth makes us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable to talk about the cost of following you. But Lord, there's blessing in that life. And there's blessing in paying the price that you ask us to pay to see your kingdom advance as we become your instruments here on earth to get the good news of your gospel out. So, Lord, I pray that as you brought things to people's minds here that you would not release them from those things. Keep returning them to their heart and to their mind. Lord, I pray that in this one small thing, just in, in praying for this city half an hour, 
and that we would be faithful to do it. We would go out and among the very people that you're calling us to reach for you. We would get outside of these walls where we gather for worship, which is a beautiful and glorious and good and right thing. But we'd also get out into the world that needs to hear the gospel, that needs you. Father, we pray that as we step up and pay the cost, that your kingdom would advance here in the city of Charleston and lives would be transformed, our own lives and the lives of others who hear your good news. For we pray these things as the body of Christ. Amen.